Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Wow, what a story. Sadie Bale grew up with alcoholic parents and really had to learn to fend for herself in so many ways from a young age. But like she said, she always felt unsafe. So she made packs with herself in her life to change that and to have the most wonderful life. And she created that with her husband only for him to have a heart attack and then come back from come back from the dead once and then go on the journey of then dealing with losing him again in a way where it's almost like she knew that it was coming. A roller coaster of emotions in this one, but also some incredible wisdom and guidance from someone who also works in the space of grief, knows what it's like to experience it and not only come out the other side, but help other people through their journey as well. Enjoy Sadie Bale. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's guest, Sadie Bale. Sadie, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Ian. How are you? Going well, thank you. Always good to chat to another person working in the space of grief. And we were just talking before we jumped on about the sort of work you do. We'll come to that later in the conversation, but a few big elements of your life. And if one of the first things you mentioned was, in your words, you had a shit childhood, both parents alcoholic. Tell us a little bit about that experience and you shared how, how you'd never felt safe. That must have been extremely difficult to navigate as a young child. Well... Shits is maybe a bit of a strong way to describe it, but it had its moments, yeah, and as you can imagine. Yeah. The, and when you're a child, you're very forgiving and you you don't really blame others easily. So so I kind of thought that's how life is initially. Yeah, so at and the time at the time it was okay, but it's on reflection that you you see for what it is. Well, as I grew older, I realized at my friends' houses, it wasn't like that. So there weren't constant parties. And I say alcohol, there was also drugs involved. My father was a musician and he he constantly had his mus- musician friends over. So life was one big party. And I think neglect, I wasn't um, abused, but I was neglected. So neglected in the way that meal times weren't regular. I'd be sent off to school without packed lunch and without having had breakfast. So I really wanted to learn to play tennis, for example. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, I was fainting on the tennis court because I hadn't eaten a thing the whole day. Oh, wow. So, So that was how it was. And I remember the one day being so hungry and just being too shy to ask somebody to lend me some money. I think it was five o'clock in the afternoon and I hadn't eaten the whole day. And I was just too shy to ask someone to lend me money so that I could buy something to eat. I I remember that vividly. I remember being on the playground and children sharing their lunch with me. So, So that's what I mean by neglect. Yeah, wow. Isn't it great that, that kids will just band together and find a way to, to help out? Uh, it's a pity that often gets 
lost when people get older. So that that food journey and the neglect around that, did it cause any, did that part of it cause any issues for you around food specifically or um, or that lack sort of feeling that you would have had from that experience? I've done a lot of work on myself since, Ian, and the food issue has come up, come up a lot, but it was more around forgiveness. I needed to forgive my parents. And, but what came up more was a fear of becoming an alcoholic. That was a big fear. Yeah, I bet. When did that start coming into your mind? Um, you know, when you're a teenager and all your friends are pressuring you to try smoking, try drinking, and I just, I was, ooh, I don't know if I want to do this. It took me a long time to try alcohol as a teenager. And I think I only got properly drunk once as a teenager. Maybe twice. Actually, that was in my early 20s, the second time, and, and it scared me. I, I just thought, oh, I can't do this. <laughs> I need to be careful. And I was worried that if a very big life-shattering event would happen to me, and the worst thing I could think of was my sister might die. So I thought, if my sister dies, will I become an alcoholic? Yeah, wow. <laughs> Have you spoken to your sister much about that childhood experience and, and the impact for both of you? We, I think in our late 20s, we got together and we just connected on that level and did have that talk. And it's so interesting how we remembered it. She had such a different memory to me. Really? I realized, yes, she was coming at it from a different perspective and we had different coping mechanisms. So my parents rowed a lot. They argued constantly because money was always an issue. And I remember as a teenager realizing that I could just fall asleep if I wanted to. If I said, if I put my head on the pillow and I said, right, let's sleep, I'd be out immediately. Yep. Yeah. And and my sister kind of pointed a finger at me and she said, I can't believe you slept through it all. Oh, and that's wow. when I realized my coping mechanism was to fall asleep as quickly as possible so I didn't have to hear the rowing. Yeah, wow. And what did she how did she cope with it? What did she do? She she was amazed I could sleep at all. She had many, many late, late nights where she couldn't sleep, where they kept her awake. Yeah, wow. In fact, she was resentful of me that I could sleep through it. Isn't it amazing? We grow up with siblings and we go through these experiences where we're both there, but we, we come out of it completely different view of it. And, and then it drives a wedge between you two when really – as children, that that was none of your faults. Um, have you been able to make peace with that with her? Um, that part, yes, but there's another part to it where, um, how do I describe this? I was the oldest and kind of a goody two-shoes, Ian. <laughs> because I, I took on the role of adult when my parents weren't being responsible. So I made sure my sister had breakfast in the mornings as soon as I was of an age that I could do that. And I made sure we had food to take to school with us once I was old enough. And so I just took over that role. And, and so my mom would always show me as the shining example and who is the black sheep? And mm. that caused more friction, which, yeah, to this day, she brings up in arguments. Mm, I bet. Well, it would be so hard from you, a young age, you becoming the mother figure to her in, in many ways. And, of course, when you're supposed to be the sister, that's going to yeah, naturally cause some resentments through that. So, 
at least you've done your best to, to this point to to make peace with it with her that's all you can do right is just find a way to move forward together yeah i've been quite fortunate you know i've, I've always made pacts with myself throughout my life and i've only realized this right now talking to you and the first pact I made with myself was I was going to get an education so that I could support myself and get away from my parents as quickly as possible and make the best life I could. And so I did. I went on and became an architect. Wow. Now, you said you made another pact with yourself because you had that experience with your parents. And you made a pact just for yourself on how your life wanted to turn out. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I just decided because the childhood had been a bit shit <laughs> <laughs> that, that I was going to choose a partner who my dad cheated on my mom a lot. So I was going to choose a partner who would never cheat on me. And I was determined that I was going to have a wonderful life in my adulthood because I was in control of it. And so I met my beautiful husband, Paul. Um, I studied architecture and my very first job, I met him there. And we both had similar ideas about what we wanted to do. We wanted to travel, we wanted to have fun, we wanted to have an adventure. We yeah. both didn't want children. And so we built a really wonderful life, the two of us. And I have to say, I did have a good time. Did you make a decision, like for you personally, around children because of the experience you've had, you'd had in your childhood? That's a great question, Ian, and one I ask myself often. And I don't really know the honest answer to that. I've never gotten to the bottom of it. But I had a pregnancy scare when I was in, when I was thirty or thirty-one, I think, and and I kind of treated it as fate. I thought, well, if I am, I am, and you know, it'll be, it'll be what it'll be. Yeah. But then a little later on, I had another pregnancy scare, and I I I didn't want to have the child, and I. I contemplated terminating if if I was pregnant. Turned out I wasn't in the end. But but that feeling was just confirmation for me that I don't want a child. Yeah. And I don't really I mean I'm sure it's partly down to my parents because I resented them so much, Ian. Yeah. I really did at one stage. I mean, I had to go through a whole path of forgiveness to to come through and be okay with myself and I just I couldn't bear the thought of my children resenting me because mm, you knew that pain all too well and and I I mean I didn't know if there was a possibility that they might resent me but I didn't want to chance it yeah oh I like I can't begin to understand but i can see how that would be the case like having gone through what you went through uh so sadie you're you've built this wonderful life and you've then had this moment with your husband getting ill can you mm. share a bit about that that moment and then how that changed both of your lives so dramatically yes well paul was very fit in fact, we both were. We both ran. We were both runners. He, um, but for some reason, I, I wasn't enjoying running as much as he was in that period. So he signed up for a, a half marathon, and I didn't sign up for this particular one. And I was doing yoga on my deck, and my phone rang, and there was somebody I didn't know on the other line saying, are you the next of kin of Paul Bale? And and I said, you can't you can't say that. Tell me if he's alive. Yeah. And he said, I can't tell you. I can't say anything. Um, you're going to have to come to the hospital. 
And Paul and I were avid motorcyclists, and he'd taken our only car to to the race. So I had my motorbike, and he had his motorbike, and we shared the car. So I said to the guy, you need to tell me if he's okay, because I have to jump on a motorbike now to come to the hospital, and I don't want to ride my motorbike in a state. Um, I don't think that's a good idea. And he said to me, get your neighbor to bring you. So we get to the hospital and he'd had a cardiac arrest while he was running the marathon. But the miracle is he was surrounded by four doctors when he fell. Wow. And so he dropped like a stone. The doctors were there, they performed CPR. In fact, I'm still in touch with one of the doctors and that's an incredible story. Just remind me to get to that. Um, yeah, well. Because the miracles just never stop. So yeah. the miracle was there were the four doctors. They revived him. The miracle is he was at a race because we lived in a remote part of Cape Town called Simon's Town. So Paul used to do these long training runs like into the wilderness where mm. there is nobody. So had it happened there, I mean, no one would have revived him. Mm. So... Okay, so the, he's on a, a race, the ambulances are available. He gets taken to the top cardiac hospital in the world called the Christian Barnard Hospital. And Christian Barnard is the first um, surgeon who performed um, a heart transplant. Wow. So Paul is in like the best hands all around. Yeah. And he survives his heart attack or cardiac arrest, I suppose, as you would call it, and he gets pneumonia. And they were, he was in hospital for a long time. They wait for him to recover from the pneumonia, and they put a, a cardiac device in his heart so that should his heart malfunction again, it was um, an electrical malfunction, yeah. this device will kickstart his heart again, so he'll be okay. Yeah. And so he comes home and... We're both architects. We have our own. We have our architectural practice together, and and Paul's very quiet after this whole experience because he died and came back. Yeah, wow. But he's not really talking about his near death experience. In fact, he's he almost looks like he's not even back properly yet. If if that makes sense. Yeah. And so one one day I sat him down. I said to him, "Listen, you were dead. You were dead." There's no ways beating around this bush. I said, what do you want to do with your one wild and precious life? What do you, I'll support you in whatever you decide, you tell me. What a and great we question. Bought, yeah, we bought a, be a beautiful holiday home in Italy and we'd come here on a motorcycle tour with our friends. And he said to me, Sadie, I'd like to guide motorcycle tours in Italy. I'd like to start a motorcycle guiding tour company. So I said, well, let's do it then. What are we waiting for? Yeah. So we closed our practice. We told the clients, we had a very difficult plan. So I just said to him, you know, I'm going to take it to the stage and I'll hand you over to somebody else. <laughs> yeah. And then we just closed all the other projects. We didn't take on any more work. And we started to pack up our house and sell our things because we already had a house in Italy fully stocked. So it didn't make sense to duplicate yeah, yeah. We, um, bef before we move to the next part of the story, can, yes. can I just ask about that experience for you when you get that news and they're not telling you whether he's okay or not? Like, where did your mind go? Like, is it, did it just go numb or is it racing and thinking about all the different possibilities or like, it must have been horrific? me was panicking yeah but there was this solid core within me that just wisely knew that it was all going to be okay yeah wow i did get goosebumps when you were telling that whole part of the story so that doesn't surprise me and and even though i felt panicked i felt detached from my panic as if it was happening outside of me and I felt within me that it's going to be okay. 
doesn't make sense. Yeah, and, and it brings up a great thing about grief is it can be two things. It can be really, really sad, but also there can be joyful moments. We can be in full panic and fear, but also have a different feeling playing out at the same time, whether it's a knowing or, or a calm. Yeah, it does make sense. Uh, and I think most people can relate to those experiences. I knew he wasn't going to die then. I knew he wasn't. I don't know how I knew. And when I walked into the room where he was, he was lying on the table, totally inanimate, as if he was dead. He was just in an induced coma. Hmm. And I burst into tears, but not... um, I burst into tears because... His eyes were closed and he wasn't speaking. And I realized that nobody in the room, I mean, all the nurses and the doctors and the emergency staff knew him or knew who he was or they didn't know that this was Paul because they hadn't spoken to him and he was inanimate. And and that filled me with sadness. Like, oh, they don't know who he is. Yeah, wow. Does does that... I mean, I'm only, you're asking me questions I haven't even asked myself, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, th- I think we, we're not sure how we're going to react in any of those situations, but that's when those, those parts of us that are so important to us really come to the surface. And and it's um, you're not wanting for people to feel alone or not acknowledged, which I guess has got a lot to do with you, the childhood that you described. For, for me, when my dad was like in his last minutes, I was concerned about us disturbing the other people in the room who may have been about to lose their family member or if they're really sick or like that's to me, looking back, that's crazy. But that's all I knew how to cope with at the time because my default was to look after everyone. Mm. So I completely understand how that there would be something going on there that perhaps for some people it doesn't make sense of, but it doesn't mean it's not not 100% true and valid for you because it was a reflection of what you'd experienced. Does that make sense? Mm. I remember the other thought was they don't know how beautiful Paul is. Yeah. Because they're not having an animated experience with him. Yeah. I guess the other thing that comes to mind is all of the things that you value so highly and Paul would have, would have been really all coming to the surface all at once like a tsunami. So he, he survives and then you make those plans to move to Italy and then tell us what happened from then, Sadie. I'm going to jump forward. No, okay, I won't. It'll spoil the story. Okay, so just remind me about the medium, yeah? I will. will. (laughs) Because that ties back to this moment. Okay, so we pack everything. We're ready to go to Italy. We're planning how we've got people booked for the first tour. We've set up the second tour. We've got people interested and wanting to book for the second tour. So we're so excited. This is a call from the universe. We're meant to be doing this. Yeah. But the issue is Paul's South African and he can't automatically go and live in Italy. So we go to embassy and we have a scary moment where we don't think he can get a visa to stay. And then we speak to the beautiful ladies in the embassy. And at that time, Paul could speak a little bit of Italian, better than me. So he impressed the socks off them and they just adored him. And he looked Italian. So so they were bending over backwards to try and accommodate us. And they said, well, because I'm British, I could go, apply to stay. Brexit hadn't happened yet. And then he could apply after that as a family member to someone who has permission to stay in Italy. 
So they found a way around it. Good on them. And, and a way that we hadn't read about on the internet. So, so that was a bit of a stress. And then the last stress was we were going to sell my bike, which was quite old, and we were going to buy a new motorbike in Italy for me. And But he had a beautiful MV Augusta, a beautiful motorbike, a triple. And he, the, the engine is a triple, it's beautiful. And he decided to keep the motorbike. And once we were settled in Italy, send for the bike. So we decided we took our friend's farm in Wellington, which is a town in the Wildlands. We lived on the coast. So it was about a two hours drive to get there. And Paul would take his motorbike. I would follow in the car. We dropped the bike off. We'd have dinner together somewhere in Wellington, and then we would come home. So that day, I just couldn't focus. I couldn't. We were busy packing our things. We had a few days to go, and we were leaving. And I just couldn't focus. I said to him, let's go and have coffee. So I went downstairs, and I made us coffee. And then I made us some lunch, and then we just chatted and like we had this urgent packing to do but neither of us felt the urgency of it so we just had a really relaxed day just chatting and then um paul said you know we better go now so i said oh okay so he put on all his motorbike gear and i realized i hadn't hugged him or kissed him so i went and gave him a hug in his jacket and then i realized i'm, I'm feeling so out of sorts today i don't even know which road we're taking to get to Wellington. So as he was about to get on his motorbike, I climbed out of the car and I ran over to him and I said to him, babes, um, which way are we going? Just remind me again. And he said, Sadie, we've gone there a hundred times. I said, I can't think of which road to take. And he said, we take Ben Powell Drive and then we go, we turn, and I went, oh, okay, I've got it. He said, I'm going to go and put petrol in first because the bike was empty and he said, I'll see you later. And I love you. I love you. We always said that to each other. He climbed on his motorbike. I drove off. He passed me at, on Baden Powell Drive against the sea. And I waved at him and he waved and he disappeared because he could quickly weave through the cars and get ahead. And I started crying. And I cried like heartbrokenly. And I thought, that's really strange. I'm not that sad to leave Cape Town. I mean, I'm really excited to go and live in Italy. I'm, why am I crying? Hmm. So for like a good 20 minutes, I just cried. And I couldn't figure it out. And then I turned inland and I saw a motorbike accident. And I thought, oh, no bikes down and then I realized it was Paul's bike and I pulled over quickly and I jumped out of my car and you'd think I'd run over to him or try CPR or something but no what did I do I started running around in circles going oh my god oh my god oh my god just oh my god oh my god for about I don't know a minute I think or I don't know time kind of gets elastic in those kinds of yeah. moments. Yeah. And then I noticed a man standing there and he was, he had his head down and there was a white, um, we call him a bucky, but it's a truck basically. And he, he was saying, it's all my fault. It's all my fault. And I didn't quite click what he was saying or why he was saying it. And then I went over to Paul because I heard him take a deep, breath in, Ian, like he'd been underwater for half an hour and what had happened was his intercardiac device had kick-started his heart. Because oh, wow. when, I, when I got there, he was dead. And, and it kicked him alive and it woke him up and he wanted to get up. And I said to him, no, 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 don't move. And people were around us and somebody said, don't worry, we've called the ambulance, it's on its way. So I just cradled his head in my lap and I just said to him, it's okay. And he kept trying to get up and I kept pushing him down saying, don't move, don't move, the ambulance is coming. 
And then I just kept talking to him soothingly, like a child, just calming him. And the ambulance came. And two hospitals later, because they took him to the wrong hospital first, the young intern came out and said his internal wounds were too severe and he didn't make it. Oh, wow. That must have flawed you. I stopped breathing, and I didn't realize I'd stopped breathing until my friend who eventually through phone calls and friends of friends and people had come to find us at the hospital, and this was at, like, he died at 23 minutes past three in the morning, so there was one solitary stoic friend who was still by my side, my beautiful friend, and he put his arms around me and he said, breathe, Sadie, breathe. And he said it to me many, many times because I would breathe in and then I would stop breathing again. Yeah. Hmm. I'm even feeling that tightness now. It's amazing, isn't it, how uh, those moments just take us straight back to... <sighs> you okay to keep going? Mm. Yeah. Have you made sense of the, f- the day you'd had when, like, what you're describing to me is almost like you already knew, part of you already knew? Yeah. I mean, this is the best part of the story, you know. My friend took him, took me home with him to his house where my best friend, you know, he's my best friend's husband and they both were very, very good friends of Paul and I. So I went back with him to the house and I went to bed and I fell asleep immediately. I must have been exhausted. Yeah, I bet. And I woke up the next morning, and as I was waking up, I heard the audible thunk of a coffee cup next to my head, you know, onto the, somebody thunked down a coffee cup onto the side table, but deliberately with, like, noise. And I heard Paul's voice call my name, and he said, Said. And that's how he woke me up every single morning, you know? You would thank the coffee coffee cup down to to wake me up, and you would call my name. Said he did that every morning. Wow! So just letting you know he was still there with you. So my first morning without Paul was not without him. Wow! Do you know how powerful that is? Yeah, amazing. That. I wouldn't say healed me at all, but it went a long way to to giving me comfort in my grief. Mm. It, it's the best gift he could have given me, and it's not the only one. There are so many. So good. So... even in that extremely sad and traumatic moment, you're still having a moment of, of beauty within that. Were you able to see that for being something so good at the time? It was just so comforting, you know. I, yeah, wow. I knew I wasn't alone. Yeah. And, and I went on from that waking moment through my grief knowing that Paul was close to me. I just had that knowing. Yeah. You must have had some questions. Why, though? You've just made these changes and, and created this really exciting life. And if he's there with you, yeah, were, were you asking him why? Were you just asking the universe why like just yourself why like how did that all unfold for you 
when after he'd had the cardiac arrest and I was in the house alone and he was in the hospital and he just had it, I think it was the next day, I remember just crying and thinking to myself, if he does die, like I had a feeling he wouldn't, but I was just thinking, if he does die, what will I do? Mm. Will I be okay? And I searched really deep within myself and I knew that I would be. And I thought, my sister lives in England. So I thought, what I'll do is I'll just go to England for a bit and go and be with her. And then I'll, I'll see what I want to do after that. But I, I almost had a mini plan. Almost like I'll be okay. This is what I'll go and do. So I gave myself like a, a plan in case if he does die. But I, I felt that he may not. In fact, I knew he wouldn't. But I just thought, what if? So we did really die. I can't say that I immediately had that plan because I was in too much shock. I actually had PTSD Mm. because the accident kept replaying in my mind. And so everyone said, go and see a psychotherapist, go see a therapist, you need help, blah, blah, blah. So off I go and it leaves me cold, Ian. Because my grief was in my body. It wasn't in my head. So I couldn't talk about it. It it just wasn't the way for me to deal with my grief was with talking about it. So I ran. I ran and I felt like I was running in syrup. It was so difficult. So I walked and ran in nature. And Paul popped into my head and gave me messages. And the one day I was so distraught and he said to me, Sadie, it's okay. One day you're going to come and join me. You, you. It's not like you'll never see me again. <laughs> and then I told you to remind me about something. So yeah, a couple of things now. Yeah, the medium. Yeah. Okay. So the medium. So I went to see the medium because I had this big why, which was your question, the why. Yeah. Yeah. Is this before or after the psychotherapist? After I saw the yeah. psychotherapist, the first well, a few I think a month in, I went to see the psychotherapist. Didn't really get. And I realised. No. So I ended up going for Reiki. Yeah. Yep. I went to see somebody for Reiki, and I went to many, many sessions, and that's a whole different story. So then, eventually, my friend, my friend is just so sweet. She says, "I booked you an appointment with my psychic." Go and see her. She's a great medium, blah, blah, blah. You can trust her. She's helped me with so many things. So off I go. And I've got this big why. And she said, he had things he had to go to on the other side. So I'm thinking, what things? What could be more <laughs> important than staying here with me and yeah. starting up his motorcycle guarding company? You know, well, like, what things? <laughs> <laughs> so, so she said, no, she can't really tell me what things, you know, it's not for me to know those things. I said, oh, well, that's not really helping. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so she said, after he'd had the cardiac arrest and I sat him down and said to him, right, what do you want to do? She said, you helped him to dream again. He hadn't been dreaming. And she said, you gave him the gift of dreaming. So when he did go, he went much lighter. Mm, Because we're we're all here to raise our vibration and get to the highest level that we can. So that when we cross over, we we don't come back to repeat that. Yep. And so, so I got him and got him over a certain hurdle so that when he does come back, he doesn't have to repeat that cycle. Beautiful. And she said, you gave him that gift. And that's, that's why he didn't die when he had the cardiac arrest because he hadn't gotten over that hurdle yet. 
Mm. And that was the, the mission for, for that lifetime. So the cardiac arrest was the catalyst for him to dream again so that he could get to his next level. So, so what about that? I'm still intrigued by that, that knowing. Was, did you question yourself afterwards? If, if in hindsight you can see that something wasn't right that day and then he drives off and you straight away start having tears like, like knowing the story, it was like, oh, like you knew it was the last time you were ever going to see him. Like, how have you made sense of that? Have you asked, could I have done something different? Could I have stopped it? All those sorts of things. No, no, I've never. I don't know why, Ian, but these are the, the, this is how I am. I, when I look back at it, I went, oh, that's why I was crying. Mm. And that's why we had that day together, just drinking coffee and chatting and having lunch and not packing. Yeah, like, it just seemed so unimportant to go back <laughs> yeah. to both of us. So we just yeah. chatted and we just, we really had a lovely day sitting in the lounge, talking, being companionable. And, and I, when I got to the scene, there was that guy saying, it's all my fault, it's all my fault. It, it came out afterwards that he had caused the accident. He had done a U-turn with his truck and Paul had hit into the side mm. of it. But I took photographs at the scene and I looked at them afterwards and there were no skid marks. So Paul had slowed right down before he hit the truck and he wasn't flown. He was right at his motorcycle. So he couldn't have been going fast. But he still hit at such a velocity or maybe in such a way that it had damaged his body internally that he couldn't survive. And his ankle was broken and there was a, he was damaged. I remember looking at him thinking, wow, there's a lot wrong here, but it can be fixed at the mm. time in the hospital. Yeah. But when he did eventually pass, I mean, two things happened. I wanted to stay with his body. Like, I understand what awake is. I didn't mm. want to leave. And the second thing that happened is we had to leave because it was an emergency hospital and they needed the room. And eventually I just realized I can't actually hold, you know, the space anymore. And mm. as we walked outside, I said to my friend, I just want to howl, like a howl at the moon. I just want to... But I didn't. I held it in because I had to phone people and let them know. I had to phone his mom. I had to phone his brother. I... Yeah. Wow. That must have been... I mean, none of this is easy, but that must have been so hard to be able to have to have those conversations. But I forgave the guy that caused the accident. The very next day when I replayed it, I just... I accepted immediately that it was Paul's time to go. Yeah, and uh, uh, to me that's something that I've had to come to a, a make peace with as well. It's like there's, there's actually nothing that we could have done differently. It's some things are just meant to be and we can continue to stuck in the ruminations and thoughts, but they don't actually help. So, wow, for you to be able to do that immediately. And what a gift for that driver to be able to give that forgiveness. You, you mentioned the, the when you went to the psychotherapist that it, the accident was playing in your mind. Like how long did it keep playing out in your mind was it the scene after the accident that kept playing out? And how long did that keep going for? It still comes back. <laughs> and it comes back unbidden, you know? Mm. That's what PTSD is. Is it, it less less painful now? 
notes. It's reminding me of the shock coming through. And in that moment when it comes to me, I feel that shock again. But it's not plaguing me. It just comes out of the blue. And then I feel the shock and then it's gone again. You also asked me to remind you of the doctor that you're still in contact with that was there to save him at the race. So we lived in a remote part of Cape Town, as I explained, and the hospital where he was was in central Cape Town. So a friend of mine kindly said, just crash in our guest room until Paul, you know, gets out of hospital. At least it's less traveling to get to see him and you can go see him more often and it's better for you. So I did that. And I think it was two days after he had, two or three days afterwards, I got a message from somebody. And it was the organizer of the race and he wanted to know how Paul was doing. And he said, here is the number of one of the doctors who was there. So, oh, I asked him for the number because I wanted to say thank you because I know this this doctor had saved Paul's life. So I sent this doctor a message and I said, thank you so much for saving Paul. This is his condition right now. It looks like he's got pneumonia, but he's he's stable, et cetera, et cetera. So he sent me back a message. Oh, and I said, thank you for saving Paul's life. Thank you. And he sent back a message and he said to me, It looks like Paul has saved my life. Wow. So what happened is later on, he told me the story. He wrote a long WhatsApp message. He said he was running the race near Paul. And he said when Paul dropped, people were calling. Is there a doctor? Is there a doctor? So he came running. And he said there were two, three other doctors. There was a brother and a sister who were interns and then their friend, and then there was him. He was older than them. He was our age. And he said, I did CPR on Paul, and when the paramedics came, we intubated him, we got him in the ambulance, and he said, I was going to carry on with the race, but I'd been feeling really strange, and I, I kind of thought, well, maybe I shouldn't push myself, you know, having just seen what had happened to Paul. Maybe I should just take this a bit more seriously and go see my doctor on Monday because the race was on Sunday. So he said he got home and that night he started to feel that he might be having problems with his heart. Wow. And he drove himself immediately to the hospital. And he said, Sadie, if Paul hadn't dropped when he did and I hadn't stopped to help Paul, I would have continued with the race and I would have had my own cardiac arrest. Oh. <sighs> oh, it tingles all through that. Uh, Isn't that amazing, Ian? That is. Yeah. It, it, I keep coming back to the same thought, that the, the tapestry of life, how all these things play out together and the and the we can't make sense of some of it, but when you hear things like that, like it's – yeah, it's amazing what is possible, what what unfolds. It's like divine, right? It's mm. beyond our understanding at times. And and what I was drawn to is you, you know, said, well, what what work would Paul be doing? Well, maybe more of that sort of thing. Yeah. So I know now what work he's doing. Yeah, do share. Do you want to know? Yes, please. <laughs> okay, so Paul passed away four years ago on the 28th of February. So a few days ago was the anniversary of his death. And exactly a year earlier, so three years after he passed away, I decided to get serious about helping others in grief. So I've been dabbling a little bit, going on Facebook and advising people, but it wasn't really something I was doing formally. And so a year ago, I decided to really turn it into a service for people because 
I felt that I'd walked the journey. I've done all of the spiritual work. I've done Reiki. I know how to meditate. I've been meditating for over 25 years. I So being an architect, spirituality and all the modalities was my hobby. Yeah. So I've been to Lords of Karma workshops. I've done breathwork workshops. I've done crystal workshops. I mean, you just name it. I've been interested and I've tried it and done it and practiced yeah. it on my friends, but never really done anything formally with it. So I thought I had all these tools when Paul died and I used them all. I did yoga. I meditated. I did breath work. I mean, you name it, whatever I could do to lessen that intensity of the emotions you go through. And it worked and it really helped me. And also my mindset was of the thought that we never die. We live on and love lives on. And that has been part of my spiritual growth that has taught me that. So so I was carrying all of these things into grief. And that's why I was able to immediately forgive the driver because I know that it's part of this larger tapestry that you were talking about, Ian. And so to get to the reason is one day I was meditating and I just knew without a shadow of a doubt that that Paul is on the other side helping me do this work. He's supporting me and cheering me on yeah. And that this is what I was meant to do, and that is what he is meant to do. I can totally relate to that. Uh, so, so he's given me another gift. Yeah. Still, still giving you gifts all these years later. Yeah. Beautiful, and even for those people who were. Uh, not necessarily getting that sort of confirmation. I'm sure everyone. I'm sure everyone can relate to the gifts that we only see later after people have passed. Amazing. But but if I want to say something to anyone who's listening to this, is just look back, and maybe you're looking at something with with anger or resentment or sadness what if it's a gift in disguise and see if you can discover it and you've heard my story of the gifts i even have another story about a gift if there's time but but the gifts are everywhere if you choose to see them as gifts absolutely absolutely and i've had those moments with my dad where i've been meditating and and it's just like it's hard to describe to people who haven't had the experience where it's just you get full body emotional experience of confirmation that they're there and and sending you a message uh for me when the when the first part of the pandemic started and it was all locked down i just got this message if everything's going to be okay and yeah, again, hard to describe, but as you said, if you are open to receiving the gifts and being prepared to receive whatever it is, well, then you, you will find a, a whole new level of beauty through your grief that otherwise you're just shutting off. Yeah. Go on. So can I mention the work I'm doing? You know, can I? Can please, I? Please punch? do. Yeah. Can I? Can I okay. ask? Um, can I ask one more question first, yeah, if sure. that's okay? Um, sure. Well, maybe one. Hopefully, only one. Um, do you mind if I ask you about your parents? Where they are now. Just like what's unfolded there, given how the relationship started. Like, have, have was there anything unresolved with them that you've needed to? address when i was 30 my dad passed away but from about the age of 21 to 30 we had a great friendship oh good because i started to 
to study architecture at the age of 23. I was a late student. I studied something else before. And he was an engineer. And so we suddenly had this common interest that, you know, he could mentor me and I was learning so much. So we had long, deep discussions about architecture and engineering and and we just had a really easy friendship in those last final years of his life. Nice. And with my mom, it was a lot more difficult because she continued to drink and alienate us with her, you know, she's a bad drunk, a mad, bad drunk. Um, and then when I started on the really working hard on my spiritual journey, I got, I came up against this relationship with my mom and I had to figure my way through it. And the only way through it is forgiveness. Yeah. And, and acceptance of, you know, she actually gave me a gift. She gave me the gift of making those pacts with myself that I was going to be okay in my life, that I was going to have a wonderful life. And I was doing that. I was keeping my pacts to myself. And it was because of her. Yeah, I love and that. So when, so when I acknowledged her gifts to me, it was easy to forgive her and easy to love her. And then I discovered why she was an alcoholic. She, she'd had a very traumatic childhood herself. Yeah. And she'd been, she'd been sexually molested by her step-grandfather. Oh, wow. And then, and then my compassion just kicked in. And I mean, when you understand it, hmm. you can forgive it as well. And so my mom is still alive. And the relationship's easy. Yeah, nice. Um, it, it's a it's a great point you raise because we've all had experience with parents or significant people that may have not necessarily done everything to our liking, but ultimately they've had their own journey and and they're not doing it deliberately. That's it's just how they have dealt with whatever experiences they've had. Uh, so. I love how you describe that, that, and forgiveness is a big part of the healing process. For anyone out there, maybe they can't face that that forgiveness at this point. It, it will create so much freedom from the pain for you when you can get to that point, knowing that, that whatever that person or people have done is through their own extremely awful experiences as well. The, the key for me on that, Ian, was my spiritual guides said to me, um, do, you, do you think your mom meant to put you through hell? Do you think she meant to? It was a deliberate. And then she kept asking me, are you sure? Because at first I was like, I can't forgive her. No, she's been terrible to me. And... Of course she did her on purpose. She was so hurtful. And then she kept saying, but are you sure? She meant to hurt you so deeply. Are you sure? And then I eventually I dropped into that emotion. Of course she didn't mean it. Of course she didn't. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Before, Sadie, you were going to start talking about uh, the work you're doing. So please do share that Okay, so there are various aspects to it. So the very immediate thing that I'm doing is an online event. It's free and it's called From Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, to Light. And it's a interview series, much like this podcast, where I'm interviewing 21 experts in grief. And they all have a different take and a different aspect on grief. And they've all walked through their grief story. So, Ian, you're one of the guests. Looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but we have diverse people, people who are mediums, people who've died and come back, 
um, people who have found relief through meditation. There's a lady who practices grief yoga. There are people who write, people who've written books, people who advocate writing in journals. There's a brilliant guy who talks about the seven languages of sorrow. So he says, just like love has, you know, languages, so does yeah. sorrow. Yeah, and wow. and he and what they are different ways that people grieve and some people just don't do talk therapy like me but he's got a whole lot of other things of how people move through their grief and how they process it which is very interesting so a lot of diverse people on speaking on diverse topics and i think people just watching and hearing other people's stories and seeing that they could and have gotten through their grief journey and they're okay now. In fact, they're thriving now. Yes. Yeah. It's the best gift you can give someone who's grieving, to give them hope. Absolutely. Uh, that To me, that's just the greatest gift of this platform, to be able to share stories of hope where, yeah, like you said, people aren't just surviving, they're now thriving, coming out the other side of whatever their grief was, from childhood experiences all the way through to, to losing loved ones. It's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, Sadie, and we'll make sure we'll get this uh, episode out uh, as soon as possible so we can share the message about that event. Thanks, Ian. And... And then I work one-on-one -on -one with people, so I'm a grief guide, and I work spiritually. So if people don't know how to meditate, I, I teach them very simply and easily. That helps them cope with the overwhelming emotions, brings them calm, um, calms down their parasympathetic nervous system so that they can breathe, they can feel calm, so it's not too overwhelming. But the, the important thing is they still need to go through grief. They need to feel grief to go through grief. So this isn't a cure, and this isn't to get you over your grief quickly or easily. It's just to give you something to help you go through it. Yeah, it's, it's uh, something that I'm a big believer in. It's, you have to reach that level of acknowledgement and acceptance and then having that... The, the tools then to be able to do that and then to, to then come out the other side and thrive. Uh, what a gift you're giving to the world. Thanks, yeah. I believe you're doing something similar too, so we're both on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else, Sadie, that you'd like to share from your story? You've, you've shared so openly already and some really powerful uh, stories and, and messages. Is there anything else you'd like to share before you wrap it up? I think the, the thing that I'm realizing now as time goes on that when these really hard knocks happen to you in life and you don't deal with them at the time, and you don't go and seek help and you don't talk to anyone and you think you can just shoulder it and do it on your own. When someone very close to you dies, all of those things come rushing back to be dealt with. So you're not just dealing with the death of your loved one, you are dealing with all of those traumas or those hard things that have happened to you, they all come back just screaming to be addressed and and your grief is going to be a lot more tough if you haven't dealt with those things and so i would say don't do grief alone if you can't afford someone to guide you through it or you can't afford a coach or guidance try and find a support that's free but whatever you do don't do it alone. Well said. Um, yeah, we, we are very much on the same page because I talk about that a lot of, there's an individual episode somewhere back in the uh, archives there where I talk about exactly that, the, the tsunami of grief that comes to the surface that's related to that particular incident and it all comes flooding back. Um, to me, that's the hardest part to process. 
the immediate stuff is thrust in your face, you deal with it, but it's all that other stuff that just gets so confusing and overwhelming. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to chatting with you more about the work we do because, uh, yeah, it's, it's important and looking forward to sharing more with you. Mm, me too. Sadie, thank you so much for coming on and sharing. I, I love, you know, some of these moments of synchronicity and people appearing at, at the right time. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to speaking at your event and sharing more messages of hope for people. Uh, I appreciate you dedicating this time. I know it's late there in Italy now. Uh, so thank you. And, um, yeah, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you, Ian. Thanks. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.